I grew up attending a fundamentalist Christian school in the golden era of the moral majority, also known as the religious right. The moral majority's initial aim was to get Christians in America to vote and steer public policy, to convince religiously minded Americans that they were actually the majority. Because when you realize you're in the majority, you act with boldness instead of being timid about your moral convictions in the public sphere. What seemed like a powerful and successful lobbying group quickly became a pawn of the Republican Party. To be a Christian, at least in my circles growing up, meant voting Republican. I distinctly remember in my formative years there being this underlying sentiment in my Christian circles that if there was a Republican in the White House, God was at work. But if there was a Democrat, there was this sense of despair like America was going to hell in a handbasket. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. When the Republican candidate Donald Trump got elected in 2016, an acquaintance on social media announced, now I can finally say Merry Christmas at the grocery store. There was some sort of underlying perception that having a Republican in the White House meant God was winning, and that emboldened this individual. My oldest daughter, who is enrolled in a class at an online Protestant Christian school, made a perceptive observation the other day. She said, when Donald Trump, a Republican, was president, my classmates verbalized this sense of hope. Now that Joe Biden, a Democrat, is president, there's this underlying sense of despair. I knew exactly what she was talking about because I had experienced and even perpetuated the very same thing when I was younger. Look, my point is not to get into politics or to talk about which party one should vote for. My point is to focus on this sentiment and perception that some feel around political power. If a political party or candidate is able to alter our perception about the kingdom of God at work, then we need to take a really hard look at ourselves and ask, do we really believe that Jesus is king? Maybe what we truly need isn't a particular party or candidate in office, but a reorienting of our perception of reality. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and welcome to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Every month or so, I like to do a special episode where I highlight a particular feast day, whether it's a celebration of a saint or an event, with tomorrow being the last Sunday before Advent, the Solemnity of Christ the King will be our topic. If you have any familiarity with the Catholic liturgical calendar, you know that there's lots of different celebrations throughout the year. While we'll dive into the liturgical calendar much more in depth in a future episode, what's important to realize is that the thought behind the liturgical calendar is to redeem each and every day and orient ourselves towards the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes these feasts or solemnities have a tradition that stretches back hundreds and hundreds of years. Christ the King Sunday is not one of those. It's relatively new, established on December 11th, 1925. How did this feast come about and why? 1925 was seven years after the Great War to end all wars, World War I. While the war was over, the world was still in shambles. Countries were in economic chaos, unemployment was sky high, food shortages were causing people to literally starve to death, and once stable governments were crumbling, Pessimism, hatred, and hopelessness were giving rise to opportunists seizing power through fascism and socialism. This period of time was an incubator for the likes of Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini. As governments restructured after the war, many of them took it upon themselves to modernize, to get rid of what they felt were old, tired traditions like Christianity. Many excluded God from their existence, opting instead to cling to secularism and self-sufficiency or to dictators who promised material goods and hope. Even though the war had ended and the Treaty of Versailles was signed, there was still little peace. 
1920, five years prior to the implementation of this new feast, Pope Benedict XV gave a prophetic warning stating, quote, There can be no stable peace or lasting treaties, though made after long and difficult negotiations and duly signed, unless there be a return to mutual charity to appease hate and banish enmity, end quote. Pope Benedict XV had passed away, giving way to Pope Pius XI as the Vicar of Christ. Seeing the world opt for economic and political power while pushing out the kingdom of heaven, Pope Pius XI recognized that the world needed a reorienting of perception and dedicated his papacy to Pax Christi in Regno Christi, the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. In 1925, the Catholic Church celebrated the 1600th anniversary of the Council of Nicaea, a landmark council which put an end to a particular divisive time in the church caused by Arius and his heresy of Arianism. That council gave the world the Nicene Creed, a statement of beliefs that continues to be recited in churches today, even churches that were born through bitter schisms. The Vatican gave a lot of attention to the importance of celebrating the 1600th anniversary of the Nicene Creed. Many even made pilgrimages to Rome, and Pope Pius used the significance of the moment to emphasize a phrase from the Creed, His kingdom will have no end. More than 340 cardinals and bishops had called for a new celebration honoring Christ's kingship. Some argued that it wasn't necessary given that there was already the celebration of Epiphany. But Pope Pius XI also saw the need to commemorate Jesus as king. And on December 11, 1925, he issued the encyclical Quas Primus, which added the feast of our Lord Jesus Christ the King to the annual church liturgical calendar. In the encyclical, Pope Pius XI called the festering social disorder and unrest the plague of society, adding, quote, Christ, who has been cast out of public life, despised, neglected, and ignored, will most severely avenge these insults, for his kingly dignity demands that the state should take account of the commandments of God and Christian principles, both in making laws and administering justice, and also in providing for the young and sound moral education, end quote. It was decided that the Sunday before November 1st, All Saints Day, should be the feast of our Lord Jesus Christ the King. After all, November 1st is the day we celebrate not just one particular saint, but all the saints in heaven. November 2nd is All Souls Day, where we remember and pray for the faithfully departed who are being purified prior to entering heaven. It seems fitting that this image of heaven that we read about in Revelation be accompanied with the most important image, Jesus as King over all his kingdom. Therefore, the Sunday before we celebrate, this idea of receiving our heavenly reward seemed particularly fitting for this celebration of Christ the King. Pope Pius also tied the celebration of the kingdom of heaven with a sacred heart and to the living Christ in the Eucharist and urged Christians to consecrate themselves or renew their consecration to the sacred heart of Jesus. In 1969, 44 years after the feast's implementation, Pope Pius VI, wanting to enhance this celebration and emphasize Jesus' lordship, changed the name of the feast to Domini Nostri Jesu Christi Universum Regis, Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of All. And he elevated the day to the highest rank, a solemnity. In addition, Pope Paul VI moved the date to the last Sunday before Advent. Why? While the Catholic Church's liturgical calendar doesn't begin on January 1st, it begins with the first Sunday of Advent, 
Advent is the beginning of longing for the hope of the Messiah. Then we celebrate Christmas. A number of weeks later, we enter into the season of Lent in preparation for Good Friday and the crucifixion. And then we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Forty days later, we commemorate Jesus' ascension. And then we celebrate the birthday of the church at Pentecost. Then there's this long stretch of what we call ordinary time, and finally we come to the end of November, right before Advent, right before the end of the liturgical year, and we celebrate Christ the King. This solemnity marks the end of the liturgical calendar. You know, I can see the meaning of putting this feast right before All Saints Day, but I can also see the poetry of putting it right before Advent. I love this cycle where we begin with anticipating the coming of the Messiah, and we end our year celebrating him as king, and then it begins all over again. The king humbles himself and enters our world as a babe, and then we end our year celebrating him as a king. It's ephemerously poetic. More than the intricacies of this particular feast day and its origin, I want to make this point. It's pretty easy to get discouraged in this world. It's full of evil and corruption. It celebrates wickedness. It's so tempting to become cynical, jaded, and frustrated. But I want you to remember an important truth today. Jesus is king. No, I don't just mean that as a nice platitude. Jesus is king. He is in control. This world is his. We are his. And let me give you a personal illustration of how the realization of Christ's kingship changed my life. Some years ago, nauseated by the absence of civil discourse in this country and the lack of understanding about political issues and current events, I became a lay journalist. The political machines were quickly reducing people to puppets, where the population parroted one side's talking points and became outraged at the other. And so I took it upon myself to do what I think even most journalists are lazy to do these days and spend hours and hours researching primary sources and writing in a way that informed people on how to find truthful information rather than just brainwash the masses into what to think. While I offered these writings as well as my Politics in Plain English podcast to the public, I did it primarily for me as my coping mechanism for living in such a broken society with no courage to imagine the virtuous and to search for truth, but instead preoccupied with settling for the lesser evil, a framework that continues to prop up a hopeless political system that slowly strangles our nation of states into suffocation. I've always felt teaching is the best way to learn, and so while I informed others, I informed myself. I was obsessed with information. My entrance into the sacramental mystical world of Catholicism jolted me from my orbit around news and politics, and it sent me on an entirely unexpected trajectory. I came into the church thinking I was getting one thing and instead have been filled with more wonder and awe than I have the capacity to grasp or articulate. I was like Lucy Pevensey, seeking a hiding spot and instead stumbling into the magical world of Narnia. After my conversion, I tried to continue writing about the news, but it increasingly felt wholly inadequate and incomplete to talk about the current world while omitting the stunning undercurrent of the sacred, the sacramental, and the supernatural. Framing issues in a way that would be palatable to the secularist suddenly felt like writing a novel without vowels. It felt impossible, like trying to breathe underwater. I had lungs now. While I've always processed life through writing, I decided I could no longer approach it like a journalist consumed with information about the negative, fleeting, temporal moment. But instead, I needed to become more like a poet who contemplated life with the imaginative possibilities of the transcendental. Journalists scratch our itch for a minute. Poets spark our wonder for lifetimes. It's the poets that often become saints and their poetry are timeless prayers. 
I have long believed that a Christian's mission is to live out Jesus' words, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was always so comfortable doing that by deconstructing all the wrong of earth with the vigor of Jesus overturning the temple tables. I think what God was moving me towards and allowing me to experience this holy mystical realm full of truth, goodness, and beauty was becoming less of a journalist who processes information, pontificating about the broken earth, and more of a poet who ponders the wonders of heaven. I heard a statistic recently that there isn't a minute that goes by where mass isn't being said somewhere in the world. I'd never thought of that. As a Protestant pastor, I remember sometimes on Sunday making this comment that all of the world was worshiping that day. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church is doing this every single day. This perpetual mass made me realize why Catholics understand eschatology, or the end times, completely different than Protestants. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven has been an ongoing reality for the Catholic Church. Every Mass is a reflection of heaven, and that reflection has continued for centuries here on earth. This perpetual Mass is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 1.11, which says, quote, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the Gentile nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, end quote. It's so easy to miss out on the kingdom of God when we're so focused on the temporal conditions and politics of earth. We border on the idolatrous when we say one candidate makes us perceive that God is more at work while another candidate brings us utter despair. Consider the early church martyrs in the first 300 years of Christianity. Many joyfully accepted horrific deaths because despite what everything around them seemed to indicate, they knew Jesus had already won. Friends, Jesus is king. What might our world look like if we truly let that marinate in our hearts and reorient our perception? Let's start with this solemnity, this holy day. On the day we end our liturgical year celebrating Jesus the King, let's commit ourselves to perceiving that reality above all others. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Why Catholic. Why am I Catholic? Because Catholicism makes prevalent this reality that Jesus is King. It is such a blessing to be able to share that message on this podcast, and I'm so blessed that you have taken time to listen. If you haven't done so, please take a second to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join the Why Catholic community. Just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe to get started. Also join me on Instagram. The handle is whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Until next time, God bless you. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic.